right, we are here with uh, Dr. Shanastel Brown and my co-host Colin Crabtree. Um, how's everyone doing today? Good. <laughs> uh, Dr. Brown, can you uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself, um, your experience, and um, what brought you to Florida <laughs> from being at Yale? <laughs> sure. Uh, so I am a medical anthropologist by trade. Um, I came to medical anthropology because I was interested in combining all the things that I thought I did well, mm -hmm. right, which was um, an interest in traveling, an interest um, in in health issues, an interest in trying to lessen health disparities and things like that. Um, and I, I, it's hard to think about sometimes, but I really do have a curiosity about people and kind of what their, what their lives are like. And so um, a few, you know, many years ago I, at this point, I was interested in trying to figure out what combined all those things. And that was how I came to, to medical anthropology. Mm. Um, in my grad program at the University of Connecticut, I started actually in um, genetic disease. And so I worked on issues of uh, cleft lip and palate as far as um, parents' expectations of surgery, for example, and how they thought cleft lip happened. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a, a cross uh, different country, um, multi-country study. And then um, I, for my dissertation research, I looked at perceptions of genetic screening in Guadeloupe in the French West Indies, and um, essentially how uh, health is wrapped up in um, all of the kind of intricacies of the Caribbean as far as um, personhood and being French, but also being um, from Guadeloupe and how all of that ties into um, the relationship to the medical care system and things like that, uh, and also families because it's a genetic disease. And then um, after I finished my academic program, I started in a, in a postdoc program at Yale School of Medicine, mm -hmm. um, and that was in the AIDS program. And so I always like to, to call the AIDS program this ragtag group of, of researchers with different um, disciplines and different strengths, all trying to look at trying to solve these really big problems. And I truly believe that if you're going to try to move the needle on any of these things, it has to be you know, it, it can't just be physicians it's, or it can't just be social scientists. Like it actually has to be this group of people who are looking at it from their trained perspective. Um, and so I started there in 2011. Um, my mentor is Rick Altis, who is originally from Florida. Um, and has been working consistently um, over his career to um, improve health outcomes for people living with HIV and who also have um, some sort of uh, drug dependence, um, usually opioids, and in trying to um, stabilize people's addiction in order to improve their adherence to antiretroviral medications, um, and then doing that in um, criminal justice settings. So when I joined um, the group, um, I actually didn't really know much about correctional systems. I didn't actually, I mean, I had vague, you know, ideas about HIV and I didn't really know much at all about opioid dependence. Um, my research areas in particular are the provider-patient relationship um, and the ways that um, patient self-treatment might affect that relationship, right? So what they're doing outside of the gaze of, of physicians and what they might be telling them or what they're not telling them and whether or not that um, might negatively affect their health, for example. 
um and that power relationship mm -hmm. right um because uh, it's a it's a hierarchical system right yeah. that where patients are usually you know subordinate to to their providers um and so i've been interested in kind of people-centered health and actually moving past patient-centered health and trying to get to people-centered health um i've also been interested in the ways that opioids have affected that relationship so in this program i kind of picked up a, a really deep understanding of uh, the opioid epidemic and being able to kind of watch that happen on the ground and then also through um, the international projects that our research group has been doing. Um, so through working with them, um, and it's a group of uh, people who work in addiction, people who work um, specifically on HIV, uh, social scientists like me, other anthropologists, um, people who are communications experts, um, and so we um, are, have all been kind of working together, uh, sometimes with students, sometimes with uh, undergrads and medical students at Yale, mm -hmm. things like that, um, and fellows, and uh, collecting data in different countries um, of, of, of interest and trying to look at the data. It's interesting that for the most part, there are definitely these issues that are happening locally, but overall, you know, stigma is still an issue. Um, as far as HIV is concerned, um, the fact that, you know, at the country level, people who end up in some sort of level of incarceration or probation or, or surveillance end up with worse health outcomes, right? And in particular in the United States, when there are people who um, come out from incarcerated settings back into the community, the link to care um, really just isn't there. And so, you know, I've, I've been learning a lot about the cascade, right, of, of treatment and the continuum of care for HIV and trying to make sure that the students that I now teach at Rollins um, understand that uh, there are kind of specific places where this 1.1 million people living in the United States with HIV, you know, are not being served. So um, that's pretty much my research interest. Um, more specifically, I look at acceptability, and, which is when a person who might be a patient, for example, encounters something new, they look at the ways, you know, they're trying to fit it into their worldview, and it could be something, you know, a new medication that a provider prescribes for them, um, and trying to figure out what are the steps that need to be taken by that person in order to essentially uptake that medication, that new regimen, that new behavior, right? That new health behavior and um, figure out ways to actually adhere to it. I've always really been questioning the idea of, of adherence though, because it always wraps up into who's a good patient and who's a bad patient, mm -hmm. right? But I think acceptability is a really interesting way to look at it because when you, you know, something could be the best thing possible for a person or for an entire community or a specific population that you're trying to get at, like with PrEP, for example. Right. And if they don't want it, or if they don't, if people don't want it, then they're not going to use it. Or if they don't um, understand it, or if, you know, they don't even necessarily like the way that it's being presented to them, right? All of this, I think, is part of that relationship between people and medical structures. And I, I think it's just really important to make sure that the communication really does go back and forth rather than one direction from 
providers to, to patients, for example. Um, and so I've been looking at ways to try to improve that communication through technology, for example. Um, mm -hmm. I work um, as part of that group with people who have now also moved on from Yale to, um, to different uh, ways of using technology, like, uh, you know, using discussion boards and possible social media apps and um, the use of mobile phones to try to improve communication back and forth. Has you, have you seen that? the communication for someone to be adherent to whatever medication they are receiving. Do you find that that's a, a training issue on the provider side? You know, it's interesting that you say that. <clears throat> um, one of the things that I have been working on most recently is um, I worked on the qualitative part of a larger project with uh, sponsored by my mentor and um, some my one of my colleagues, uh, Archana Krishnan, who's at the um, at SUNY Albany, and so she is our, our you know the the M Health expert. But what she's looking at is trying to figure out if there are ways to loop the communication so that patients can receive text messages either from uh, providers that are kind of encouraging messages. Um, or if there are ways that even an electronic pillbox, for example, can send message reminders to patients to remind them to take their HIV medications. Is that different than, um, I don't know, Colin, if you've seen it, um, there's a thing where, it's a type of medication where if someone takes it, it automatically sends a digital signal to their provider that they've right. taken. Is that similar to what you're saying? Um, it's similar, but it sounds like what you're describing is in the pill itself. I mean, yeah. there's actually also like smart pill boxes mm -hmm. and things where they know that they've been opened and, mm -hmm. and things like that. And like a MEMS cap or something. Mm -hmm. And those are useful, but they're also kind of expensive. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that um, the research group has been trying to figure out is, you know, for people who might be unstably housed, mm -hmm. right? Um, it doesn't mean that they can't also use this kind of technology. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, so far, what they're they're finding is that, you know, they're the participants' um, unstable housing conditions aren't affecting their ability to um, to use this pillbox and to use their phone as far as being able to stay in touch with their providers, but also with um, with the box itself. But there's a few ways that are kind of um, on that front edge of technology as far as um, figuring out whether or not somebody's taken the, the medication or not. And then, of course, after the fact, there's also the potential for testing blood, urine, things like that. And, and then and on all of that, um, is there... I would imagine that there's some privacy issues that could be stemmed from from that kind of kind of kind of communication, a digital pillbox of has he has he or she um, opened this medication? Have they taken it? Um, but then when you brought up the unstable housing, would the privacy actually lead to better care? Because if something were to happen to that patient, someone would know um, that this person is not hasn't taken it in a couple of days, maybe something's wrong, I should call, I should visit. Mm -hmm. uh, is the, the, the research ever show that that's a possibility? That Because, so there's a, it's a kind of a two-part. So the privacy issue of like too much information they're getting shared and right. those other part of maybe the information that's getting shared to the provider actually saves their life or helps them get out of situations that are creating barriers for them to um, live healthy lifestyles 
within their health guidelines? Yeah. So one thing that I think is really interesting is that you, even though you have, um, you know, we can insert technology into the framework, you still have to do the, like building the rapport, right? And so building the rapport, building concern is really, really important and seems to have already been done so that, and this is up to the people that were interviewed in these focus groups, but it seems like um, this particular population, and so for them, they are definitely placing their trust in their providers, right, and want to be able to communicate with, with them. Um, and I do think, and so in the data, you can also see that there are these things. Um, not everybody was concerned about that. And I think part of it is just because of the length of time that they have been living with HIV. Um, diagnosed, and some of the others had been um, diagnosed years previously. Mm -hmm. So they've had a little bit more time to, yeah. to live with it before right. we put technology on top of it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think when populace, but to people in their own homes, mm. right? That is, they were wanted to make sure that the pillbox and that the phone messaging mentioned viral load, or, right. you know, and the same thing with messaging from providers, right? To say, for example, there's one person who didn't want um, their children to know. Did, did, was there anything, any research done on the behaviors of why? It's hard to know how old those children were, right? Okay. And right. Oh, so that wasn't even part of, like, that wasn't, like, a criteria that was... No, no, no. This is just what came up in, in these, these conversations in these focus groups that they said, well, sure, with participating in this kind of study and doing, you know, and getting, having the, my phone receive mess ongoing, the qualitative part is done and we're writing that up now. Um, I need to keep writing. <laughs> but um, it, what it seems like, um, there are concerns about privacy. Um, depending on, um, we, we interviewed um, clients and patients, right? Mm -hmm. So the case managers are going to have a much closer relationship. They're going to know more about the kind of all the facets of a person's life and mm -hmm. where case managers become absolutely integral and kind of bring them, bring them back mm -hmm. in a way that a physician wouldn't simply have the time. Right, right. There's some questions I have about... Uh, in, in the places that you've done it, um, has there been anything looked at when people are actually during their length of, during their sentencing, where they're within that? Um, reason I ask is, uh, so Hope and Help, we test people coming in and coming out. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're, and, and, and because people think that no one has sex or no one does anything in jails and that condoms aren't allowed because none of this happens, right? right. So this, is, this is what the law has said that is happening. Was there anything looked at? Because Florida is a weird state, right? Okay. So we, we've already established in off recording mm -hmm. that Florida is a little bit backwards in the way they think about health care. Mm -hmm. Was there anything looked at uh, that probably start probably before, they're sent, before they come in and during and then when they leave? It's different from state to state and then also from country to country, right? Mm -hmm. So, for example, you know, if you look worldwide, a lot of it also just has to do with the um, with the structure of the correctional system, right? So if you have um, a jail system and a prison system and they are communicating with each other, um, then it may look different as far as how people 
are moved, for example, from jails to, to prisons and how that data ends up being tracked, mm -hmm. right? So as part of my um, group within the AIDS program at Yale at the School of Medicine, and of course, that's all dictated by law. So um, in Connecticut, which is a small state, but has um, a very kind of specific structure as far as its jail and, and prison system is concerned, um, it's a it may be a little bit easier than Florida to track and see, you know, when out, but then sometimes they would, you know, get out. The one that I'm kind of thinking of um, co-coordinated um, the clinical trial for my, for my mentor, um, Washington DC is not a state. And right. so it's actually a federal, so, you know, if you do not commit crimes within the, the borders of, of Washington, D.C., right. right? You know, for that project, it was actually really difficult to communicate with um, with people. Our project was originally supposed to um, refer um, pre-trial detainees. In Malaysia, what they have is a, if a an officer thinks card that is showing that they participate in a needle exchange program can mm. be interpreted as as paraphernalia um the person can be detained um for two weeks um and we what we did is that a few years ago there were um cnc centers and so it, they're um they're centers that are designed to, to offset some of these kind of compulsory detention centers. Mm -hmm. And some of them were actually being converted into these um, more kind of open uh, centers for people to um, potentially sleep. And so what would happen is, um, and so we did a couple of studies by the clients who were going there because mm -hmm. they, you know, had activities that they could do and that felt more... Um, almost like a community where there were people and it was not, you know, this kind of essentially a detention center. The pendulum is swinging back the other way and some of those centers are starting to um, become still political, mm -hmm. right? And so by looking at, you know, how people treat incarcerated people can get a much better sense of how all people are treated. Research uh, people like you have done and other colleagues of yours and even in... Um jails have a more of a community feel to it or if it's a detention center everyone's down mood and then problems arise out out of that sure well i mean and one thing that's really you know in the global health classes that you know i it used to be this point of pride for myself that mm -hmm. i didn't know anything about jail um you know and jails and prisons are for people who did something bad and that they should be punished right and so it looks like right takes on this kind of moral tone too especially when you look at you know the the legacy of the war on drugs and if you look at you know, the it's for places where for people that were scared of and that you know people don't really understand that they are also incarcerated. Does that conversation, this conversation go into two ways, right? So it can be uh, the whole, everyone should be free, and like, does this actually fit? Like, mm -hmm. should this person who murdered 20 people habitually, does their crime fit their punishment, and should they be re rehabilitated? And that's, I guess, where it goes to the moral compass. Mm -hmm. Right, um, right. Uh, I mean, certainly with, like, talking about drugs, at, you know, at political levels, the drug use really is is a brain disease and addiction right and that it is not some sort of moral failing mm -hmm. right but at least from you know 
some of the you know the circles that I've that I've been in that there's the shift that's happened. Um, it's not just it can't be just as simple as just saying no, and it can't be just as simple right. as um, as as saying to people that they should just simply not do. But uh, I kind of want to uh, go into um, well, you had a couple of things that about the publications that you wanted to um, right. Well, we did speak about the um, one involving um, the. Oh, well, there's the correlative retention in HIV care after release from jail, which we touched briefly upon and how it's definitely hard to set up the linkage afterwards. Um, and if you want to go into more detail about the results that you found in that study specifically, if you have any to share with us. Or we can go down the topic of how minorities are disproportionately jailed and how that leads to... And they're disproportionately affected by HIV. Yeah, so um, I can imagine yeah that's, that's, that's true. Yeah, so... Um, I was involved in the study that you're talking about, um, and I can find the title, but um, so correlative retention on extended release naltrexone, right, among persons living with HIV infection, transitioning to the community from <laughs> the criminal justice system. <laughs> it's academia, we have to have long titles. Right. Um, so my my part in that was on the, um, in the acceptability piece, right? So extended release naltrexone is um, is a medication that's used for uh, drug dependence. And so it's used for um, both alcohol dependence and also for opioid dependence. Um, and so for this particular project, there is an interest in um, trying to see what might be influencing people coming back, basically, right? Mm -hmm. um, especially because um, these are injections, um, and they're injections into like a large muscle, mm -hmm. right, in in the buttocks, and so that you know may or may not be something that people are interested in. I don't know if I fully ascribe to the idea of shot fear, right, as being the main reason why people don't do or don't do injections, right? I think it's an excuse to not, more than like they're really afraid of it, I guess. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, and so what they found is that, um, so 90% of the people, and these are people who, so again, the same population of people who have these comorbidities, right? So they um, are living with HIV and they have some sort of drug use uh, problem and disorder. And so again, by trying to help people adhere, you know, trying, trying to help people with their drug problem, you can help people um, with HIV adhere to their antiretroviral medication better, um, which is the whole goal. Um, so with that particular study, um, we were trying to figure out what might influence people to get to that second injection, mm -hmm. right? Um, so the 90% of the people did the first, and then 60% did the second one. Um, and this, what influenced that second one were things like um, not having an alcohol use disorder, um, expressing some sort of uh, depression before, um, before being incarcerated, um, not uh, testing positive for cocaine um, through a urine sample mm -hmm. right before they were um, right on the day of release. So there, I, I say all of this to say that there are definitely these kind of multifactorial 
multifactorial issues that are happening to people as they are um, on their way back into the community, right? Mm -hmm. And I know from doing qualitative interviews um, with the same population, right, of people that for the most part, you have people who are trying to adopt new sets of behaviors so that they don't repeat, you know, mm. what they did before in order to get picked up and then convicted and going to going to jail. Mm. But the behavior that they try to replace is essentially untenable, right? And so we did these this set of interviews with a, um, it was before this study came out, but um, people who this was uh, took place in Connecticut. And they were people who um, were returning into the community uh, from being incarcerated. And so they were, you know, we asked them like, oh, say, okay, well, what do you, you know, what do you do in your day? And they would say, well, you know, I go to work and I come home. And we're like, that's it? And they're like, yeah. And it's like, but how do you live, mm-hmm. right? Like that's not necessarily living. Right, and right. their goal was to try to avoid some of the people that they used to run with, right? Mm. Um, which again, it's only a matter of time before, because the communities are so small, right? Yeah, exactly. That you run back into these same people, right? And so, um, and I think as much as I think that kind of some of the, you know, the social issues that are related to drug use, I think that needs to be further stressed, right? That drug use is a social activity, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, yes, absolutely medication can help. And I think that the people who who want to go that route need to be on it, but it doesn't solve the problem of... Social problem. Well, it the idea that, you know, people do things in groups, right? Like mm-hmm. humans have always done things as groups. Yeah. That is something that's kind of like deep in the wheelhouse of anthropology. We always do things together. Mm-hmm. And it becomes harder to break those habits, you know, even through medication because the social bonds are, are there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, unless you wanted to go into the other things, uh, kind of want to jump into the kind of kind of talk about some of the mainstream stuff so i we talked about the hiv organ transplant um mm-hmm. in north carolina so duke it, it was a duke health uh so they had a a person who needed a liver transplant and he was hiv positive and then they uh gave him the ultimatum uh, you can be on the transplant plant list and you can wait for an hiv negative uh liver but the HOPE Act, which is uh, a federal, uh, it, it, it was a federal case that they was approved to allow for HIV positive organs to be part of a donation um, process. Uh, you can wait, you can actually probably receive an HIV positive organ mm-hmm. and it might actually take less time to receive. Um, the, go, the workaround was that North Carolina had very strict laws preventing this from happening um, and they had to get it approved. But do you believe that this is, because this is a groundbreaking mm-hmm. uh, thing for our clients and clients and people who are HIV positive to be able to put good use to the organs if they want to mm-hmm. be a donor, a, a donor, and um, if they need transplants, actually receive life-saving uh, services because this is a possibility for them now. Do you think this is something that what 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 are the next steps for this to actually be something that's approved? Um, across all medical spectrums for for that to happen 
Um, and, and could we even expand it into um, services beyond just the transplants? Right. Uh, and this is completely I opinion. I don't, don't, I don't know. Um, because I am not a surgeon. And so I don't know as much about organ transplants themselves. Um, it seems to make sense to me that somebody who needs an organ should be able to to, to get one in a right. timely manner. Well, because until a few years ago, this was illegal because um, before the HOPE Act was passed, you just were not allowed to donate if you were HIV positive. Right. And so there, I'm sure, you know, that there is a population of people, you know, especially as people are getting older, right, that the population of people with HIV is getting older, that yes, organs are going to give out, right? right. Mm -hmm. And so I think it it will be more important going forward that there the people should be able to give organs to each other. Mm -hmm. um, I also think, you know, as a result of the um, opioid epidemic, that there were or because there are so many people who are uh, otherwise healthy who are overdosing, that there are more and more families who are giving the bodies of their deceased, their recently deceased people, to organ donation. And so it's in a roundabout way. There are more people whose lives could be saved through some of these, you know, these organ donations. I, I, and this might be actually very uh, dumb of me to actually go down the route, but because we have an organ transplant that was successful, presumably, right? Mm -hmm. um, would we ever get to the point because of the undetectable and transmittable um, status uh, that the CDC approves, would even blood transfusion be something down the road that would be something we can look at? Presumably, because if we can get uh, in a person who has HIV, who's HIV positive, who gives blood, um, I imagine that you'd have to do something to get uh to make the virus not so strong into mm -hmm. someone else that's going to receive that hfv positive themselves would the same thing be looking at for for blood transfusions in the future well that's interesting i i feel like if a story like this got out into the mainstream media people would have a freak out because they would mm -hmm. say like we don't want people with hiv giving their blood to anybody i don't think that's going to happen anytime soon oh well, i'm not saying anytime right. soon <laughs> it took it took us 30 years for this to happen right well. right but there are also still issues with homosexual men being able to to give blood right there was right. this kind of comp it wasn't even really that great of a compromise that came out you know that if you hadn't had, you know, if you hadn't done certain things in a year, then you could give blood. But, instead of the lifetime ban. Right, have. instead of the lifetime ban. Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, so, and those are people who don't have HIV. Right, and while that's a step in the right direction, it's still a discriminatory policy. So I, I don't see it going from, first of all, getting rid of that, and then on top of that, letting people with HIV donate blood. That, I, that would take a while. Right, I don't see that either. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Not anytime soon, at least. I almost feel like it would have to take one of those um like a media event or something where some you know elected official is getting a blood transfusion like in the way where they're like the water is safe and they drink the water right, right? it would have to be that kind <laughs> of like they should do that at flint then. public and they did <laughs> oh, what <laughs> yeah they did they did yeah and there's nothing strange over there no i'm saying that there are there's footage of people saying like the water is safe and they're drinking the water mm. and it was not correct. No, no, not quite. Yeah. Oh, well, people would do anything to get get public pressure off their back. So, uh, but uh, so the next thing uh, was that 
So you read that Grindr now is allowing for um, the users to find uh, places to get tested for HIV, um, kind of periodically have a reminder, uh, a way for them to get reminded every three to six months to get tested. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a great, that's, that's a very good um, service to offer because uh, because the, the gay male communities or the men, men who have sex with men communities is disproportionately affected by it, mm-hmm. obviously. Uh, but why, and probably it doesn't have to be, I understand why it was granted I should, that sort of started of it, but it should it be something that even like other apps, other dating apps that lean on the heterosexual uh, community should that be something they offer as well for for normal STD screenings? Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't have to be HIV specific, but for STDs themselves, um, for even like a college community that uses so the apps now in undergrad are Tinder and Bumble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Well, we should mention that if for anyone who doesn't know what Grinder is. It is a dating app that is specifically catering towards men who have sex with men, which is why um, it's pretty monumental that they included this new aspect with being able to be reminded of HIV and for finding locations. And it makes sense as to why this is the first app to do so. Yeah, I agree with you. I, it does make sense that that. It, but for me, it's like, why wasn't this built into the design in the very first right, version, right. right? If you are aware that you are essentially facilitating people getting together specifically for dating, but also for sex, um, it's, it, I think it behooves anybody. It seems, you know, like malfeasance to not have, you know, it wouldn't have been that hard design wise to have built this, right. to build this in. Yeah. And they chose not to because, you know, I just think it's really important that we should all remember that these are corporations and mm-hmm. that the their goal as a corporation is to improve their bottom line. And the unfortunately, the public health end of things, it, it feed, doesn't necessarily feed into a model that directly ties to profit. And if it could, then I think it would have been even easier to kind of build these kinds of services into into apps like this. Yeah. I mean, even if you're looking at a corporate model, the economics say that, and probably would say that the costs associated with building that feature into the app is not going to significantly hinder your 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 average total cost of production of that of producing the app and keeping the upkeep and the labor and the whole thing. Right. And then the users that want that use it. I don't think that it would be a significant rise and you wouldn't have to you wouldn't even have to expand significantly to lower those costs. Sure. I mean one thing that I talk a lot about in anthropology is to have is to show people how to look at structure, mm-hmm. right? And pretty much the way things are are because somebody wants it to be. Yeah. Right. And so um, or because they haven't overcome inertia, you know, mm. to do something different or right. to, to go in a different direction or to imagine a different design, right? So it didn't matter enough to them at the time. Right. Well, when... I think I know with Grindr specifically, um, it has a reputation while identifying as a dating app. Um, it's kind of pretty universally understood by not only uh, the gay community, but mm-hmm. by the people who run Grindr that the app is also catering towards people that are looking for just hookups. Right. And it's kind of the go-to for hooking up if it's a um, yep. gay app. And I think they didn't want to be associated with that for a while. They didn't want that, you know, stigma of being like, oh, that's the hookup app. Right. Um, but after a while, they understood that, you know, instead of trying to, like, push yourself away from that identity, 
at least, you know, cater towards our audience and help them do things safely. And, you know, I'm really glad that they are doing this now. Sure. Well, and one thing I think is also really important to keep in mind is that when people design apps, for example, um, or design anything, they don't necessarily know how it's actually going to be used by their users until they actually start using it, right? And so it's, in some ways, the users who took grinder into that hookup right. area right that didn't have necessarily anything to do with the actual bits and bytes right that was mm-hmm. people who decided that they were going to use that their app for this purpose um and so i think it's always really important to you know so i i don't blame grinder but i right. almost feel like again if they had known or if they wanted to be you know they could have facilitated many more safer sex you know encounters than what they had and i think that's why they avoided it for a while because they Mm -hmm. didn't want to almost admit that they were the app that's used for this but that's right because that could open them up to potential problems that they didn't probably even want to anticipate i mean you can you can probably even put in some policy when you sign up for the app or whatever to it's like grinder does not take responsibility for blah 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 insert legal language um and then, and then I think Tinder and Bumble should probably be the next ones that start bringing that stuff in. Because mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. when because when you because when you break it down or not, these are sites where you might not you may like you may meet someone that you you're with for a while in a monogamous relationship, but mm-hmm. the core the core audience of those apps is to one hit it quit it leave never talk to you again mm-hmm. type of experience, uh, and even something more that is seen as a more of a long-term relationship deal like match.com they should probably look into offering that additional service as well because even for finding a pharmacy to get a pregnancy test finding Mm -hmm. places to just get normal scd tests uh because at the end of the day these are people that have never never had any any relationship to each other so there's some some sense of anonymity Anonymity. 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 Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> there's the, a the sense of that that uh, you don't know who you're with at the time. Like you, you really don't know until you you really kind of have to really find as much details you can about mm-hmm. them to find out where are they on the crazy scale. Where are they? Uh, how do they deal with? Uh, how do they confront um, blockades and barriers? Do they? Are they? Do they? Uh, are they? Do they respond with rage or, or calm or, you know, it is a, there's still some sense of you don't know the person. Uh, and with those things, you have to, in my belief, you have to have services that support the whole, um, like, I had unprotected sex. I probably should get a pregnancy test or get an STD test or get an HIV test and do all these other additional mm-hmm. services that probably doesn't cost the company much to just do it if it's a free, low cost on the consumer um, to do. And it, and it makes them look like, hey, we care about your experience. We want you to have a safe experience. We don't mm-hmm. want to get the backlash of we're responsible for you uh, being in a, being compromised in a position that's going to be negatively affecting your life. Right. And I can see why that like positive spin would be encouraging these apps to do so. But I can also see where they might find a negative aspect where it's like, oh, well, we don't want to have to offer like or make these things because we see Grindr doing it because they're for hookups and a lot of these apps don't want to advertise right. that they're used for that. And I think they would fear that including that information or including those resources would 
make them kind of reveal the fact that, you know, like, not everyone here is just looking for a nice coffee date. At the same time, if that's what people are using the app for, and that's what's, you know, a very important social cause, then I think it would be more beneficial in the end. It's just convincing them that it is beneficial. Sure. I mean, I read an article yesterday that was talking about how Grinder, in particular, um, has now, I guess, makes it possible to disclose your HIV status. Right. Right. Or that you could say that you were on PrEP, but you were negative and you were taking mm -hmm. PrEP and things like that. And I think, you know, um, I certainly hope that it will spark more conversations about privacy concerns, right? But right. At this, especially since, for example, there have been all these cases where letters have gone out to people from not necessarily medical providers, but these like kind of large companies um, as far as pharmacies are concerned and their HIV status is like encoded on the front of the letter. And so that's mm -hmm. like inadvertently disclosing, you right. know, disclosing mm -hmm. their status, whether or not they wanted that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, it's 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 an interesting thing that Grindr is doing, right? right? It, in a lot of ways, it's way more experimental than they probably expected to be. Definitely, yeah. Right? Um, so it, it'll be interesting going forward to see how many people, for example, you know, how that new piece of information that people are giving about themselves and whether or not they're seeing it honestly even. Right. And it's important right. to remember that difference. you don't have to listen to any of this, you know. Yeah. Um, they leave you a lot of just like optional blank options. Um, but yeah, it would be interesting to see how many of their users do mm -hmm. choose to use the function. And yeah. if so, how many people say like, oh, I am negative on PrEP, I'm negative. Yeah. How many people admit to being positive when they may be, but they don't want to disclose it, you right. know. But of course, we may not have a way of reading all that. Yeah. I mean, I... I from from my understanding, it's there's a lot of stigma that even, and not just in the in the gay community, but in minority groups in general, there's a lot of stigma stigmatization that happens, and a lot of putting down each other uh, within those groups for whatever reason. And I feel that for Grinder, if you disclose your status, you're still going to get some negative feedback, like or some whether it's explicit to you or not, like oh he's on prep. Is he positive? I don't want to do that. Or right, yeah, we were talking about this recently. Or, or um, there's some discriminatory beliefs and behaviors that sure. Uh, in, in the ways like, oh, I don't take prep, so I'm good because I'm negative. It, but he's doing it, so he's doing something that I probably shouldn't be involved with. Right. There was kind of an idea, um, which is a shame, but it's the idea of if you're on prep, that means that you're a slut or something. Where right. It's like, you're being unsafe and you're only mm -hmm. on it because you sleep around, which is, right. first of all, exactly. not always the case. And second of all, not always a bad thing if they're taking precautions, one of them being on prep. Right. It, it, I mean, if we had to get to the point, it, and then we're going off off the rails a little bit, but I'm enjoying it. Uh, that <laughs> we're, about, we're on topic. We are on topic. Okay. But I'm about to go off topic we're a little prep bit. Apps. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm about to take a little bit off topic. Uh, oh, that right. uh, we had to get to the point where HIV. Um, in other chronic illnesses like HIV, herpes, and, and things like that, specifically specifically for this case, HIV is seen in the same ways that diabetes is looked at, mm -hmm. um, that cancers are looked at, because uh, it, it really is treated, well, can't, for some for some stages, cancer is not, but in diabetes, a type of diabetes, it, it's, it's manageable, and the other one, you can either lower yourself so you're not diabetic with type 2 diabetes. Um, but I've got to get to a point where it's not seen with a stigma of what did you do? Uh, mm -hmm. So it's like, because uh, you don't see someone who's who's type 2 diabetic who's like, oh, you ate like crap and you never took care of yourself. 
No, you see that. Well, but but you're, but you're not <laughs> ostracized. But you're not ostracized for it, though. You're not kicked out of your home for being. You're not kicked out. Of, that's true. Right. You're not kicked out of your that's, home that's for, for contracting diabetes, and you're not kicked out of your home for contracting cancer because you smoked. Uh, it, it, it it's like. HIV is like if you disclose that you're HIV positive to your parent, your risk of getting kicked out increases a bit depending on the culture and the way your parents thought they brought you up. Thought is the key term there. Um, how your friends see you, how uh, new partners see you, how uh, other medical providers see you, and if they want to treat you or not. Uh, there's a lot of barriers that sorry these people start um, dealing with that. If I have lung cancer because I smoke, no one's going to judge me that I smoke. They're going to say I'm stupid for smoking and I got lung cancer because of it, but they're not going to stop talking to me because of it. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, they're not going to see you as a different person, right. as a rebel. If enough. anything, I might get some sympathy um, because I have cancer. So mm-hmm. it, 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 it's a way, it's a thing that no one is able to get their head around. And, and I don't know where we get to the point where they stop putting their own moral high ground on mm-hmm. to someone else uh, because they could have been diagnosed with HIV by birth. Um, they could mm-hmm. have done it by, uh, uh, they could have done it through anything that broke skin and blood, blood to blood contact. It could have been their first time having sex and unprotected success. And it was, they didn't know because the person didn't disclose or net, that, that was never the conversation. It, it, there's a bunch of other issues that is not, on the person's fault uh, for why they they have the virus. There's a multitude of issues, but I'm not going to mm-hmm. sit here and say that. Uh, say I'm not going to be someone's friend because he smokes so and he has cancer, so I shouldn't be around that because look what he did. Mm-hmm. That's not a thing, right? You know, it's interesting because um, for me, this issue is actually a little bit trickier than I know. I know. I obviously I see where you stand, right? Um, <laughs> Because for me, like, so this question of HIV exceptionalism, mm-hmm. right? We, so, you know, is it different from other diseases or mm-hmm. is it is it not, right? Mm-hmm. Is it essentially the same as other chronic diseases? Right. I actually don't think it's the same mm-hmm. as, as other chronic diseases. Not in terms of, you know, for the transmission, but because it's not something that we collectively as a society have a handle on mm-hmm. right? right we still don't have enough people who are linked into care we still don't have mm-hmm. people who are you know who could be diagnosed as as diagnosed and we still don't have people who you know could be on on prep who who probably need to be on prep so uh, there's still all these issues of access to care um and so what it seems like for you know, and also that then relates into funding, right? Because mm-hmm. the CDC, sorry, not the CDC, the, um, the NIH for a very long time had a separate track of, mm-hmm. of funding money set aside for HIV-related um, projects. Right. And that has now fallen by, you know, that has now been, been discontinued, mm-hmm. right? And while you can interpret that as a good thing because it means that we have solved a lot of the problems, right? Which is true compared mm-hmm. to like 1990. Right. Definitely. Right. Um, it also means that my fear is that more and more people are going to become complacent about it. And mm-hmm. that more and more people is going to become more and more difficult for people to, um, 
remember the ways that they can protect themselves from it because it is an infectious disease, right? Um, some cancers are, are also infectious, but um, diabetes is not, right? And, mm -hmm. and these are all, these are bigger killers at this point, mm -hmm. right? And so I do absolutely agree that we need to put the focus on, um, we need to really rethink how uh, funding works and where, you know, the priorities are as far as public health is concerned and where, you know, communication needs to be, um, needs to be placed. But I'm also concerned that, um, for example, by not keeping HIV on people's minds, mm -hmm. that it is actually going to just kind of fade into, into the background because, and people will think that it's been a problem that's been solved. Yeah. And we already see issue with that. Um, for example, Florida is one of the only states where new infection rates are rising while right. the national average is decreasing. That's right. And I think, um, coming from my generation as being 19, 20 years old, um, I did not have to live through the era where HIV and AIDS was very misunderstood, where people didn't know what to do, where people were dying. I didn't live through that. I didn't have firsthand experience. So I think a lot of people in the older generations can see that and like, it's a lot more fresh in their minds. They can remember um, to take like preventive measures. They know the impacts much more clearly than people in my age group do. Mm -hmm. And because we now live in a society where we know, yeah, it's still not great, but it's manageable. You can live a long, healthy life, etc. Mm -hmm. We are less afraid of it. And because of that, we make less wise decisions. And that's why I think it's um, not being, at least in Florida, it's not being controlled in the way that it should be. Sure, absolutely. I mean, and maybe, you know, organizations that have been HIV front, you know, facing, you know, HIV based clinics don't have to say that you know as they don't have to like hold that flag as high anymore right that it can be something that can be rolled into part of you know regular care mm -hmm. but i mean i also still think that we need everybody to have some sort of understanding you know mm -hmm. of of what it is and and how to how to prevent it um but at the same so i go back and forth about the hiv exceptionalism issue is what i'm saying right. is that i i literally go back and forth about it because you know, I know how important it is and I know how much people don't want to have HIV. Mm -hmm. But at this and at the same time, you know, if we looked at issues of access to care and improved that, we could improve HIV, right? right. All the same issues, you know, homelessness, poverty, you know, those are HIV issues. And so we don't necessarily need like a separate pot of money from the NIH to address those things. And in fact, it worked in this kind of backwards way that there were so many researchers who became HIV researchers because that's where the, you know, where the focus was, right? Mm -hmm. That was the, the shining light that attracted all these people. That's how I came into it. Um, but at the same time, it's like the actual underlying problems are not changing, right? So linking people into care, access to care, mm -hmm. um, you know, getting people, you know, the high cost of medications, all of these things are the same problems that you find in diabetes that you see, that you see in cancer and treatment and things like that. So if we can get at some of those structural issues, then we wouldn't need to be, you know, in people's faces about HIV because the problems that are in it are the same. It's not because people don't know how to, how to how to protect themselves. It's because they can't. Mm. Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, yeah, you I'm definitely have to have a <laughs> mixture of 
kind of like the structural, like institutional, but then also having people's like, the way I think of it, I see like the three paradigms of sociology mm -hmm. and how that kind of plays into effect because yes, you need to go through into the institutions and you have to see what's wrong there, how to improve that, but then you also have to get into the minds of not only individuals, but also the society as a whole. So it's definitely multifaceted and there's a lot of gray area when it comes to finding one solution. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if that's possible. I think it has to be a lot of different factors. Yeah, I mean, when I talk about, um, so in my course for the anthropology program, which is drug, sex, and HIV, right? It's a medical anthropology course. And we start with, here are all the, the statistics about um, about HIV worldwide. Here's what's happening in the United States. Here are the key populations, you know, in the United States that, that get it, right? And then we start talking about the history. We talk about ACT UP and we talk about, you know, uh, the high price of medications and we talk about antiretroviral medications and how all of that came about and then we talk about you know the intersection between HIV and the law and how HIV was criminalized right as a disease so one way to get rid of the exceptionalism is to remove those laws that are specifically written for HIV right right but I'm not a lawyer um, <laughs> and and um, then we start to get into um, how anthropologists really looked the other way at the beginning about HIV because they were interested in other things and then came around, you know, to being, you know, really integral to understanding at the community level what's what's happening, right? Mm -hmm. And by looking at issues of poverty, that's how you can see. So, and I say all this to say that when we start the class, the students are saying, well, people need education because they don't understand, you know, how to how to get HIV. And then there's like a switch that happens somewhere in the course and they start wanting to talk more about access to care. And they start talking about some of these structural issues because somewhere along the way they see that, you know, being a woman, you know, there's nothing about womanness that automatically makes you um, prone to to getting HIV, right? To being right. infected with it. But it's all the other things that are related to being a woman right? Like discrimination, like, you know, not being able to um, make your own decisions, condom negotiation, right. for this example. This is similar for minority groups where it's not that right. because you have a darker skin tone, you're more likely to get it. It's because of the institutional issues. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I just, I think that it's really, you know, it's really important. So it's, it's always interesting in that class because like I said, they go from talking about how people just don't know enough to, well, wait, what are we going to do about access to care? And I'm like, yeah, well, I'm already really tired of talking about access to care. <laughs> right. I'm glad that you are now you know i'm glad you're ready to talk right. about it but for me i'm like access to care should not be an issue in the united states right. anymore that should be solved mm -hmm. quality of care is where we should be and we can't have those we can't talk about one without trying to solve the other right. there needs to be almost like equal part education and resources mm -hmm. when this comes to these discussions well, it's like hope and help's journey we should have been having we, honestly we probably should have been a a, a national organization 15, 20 years ago, mm -hmm. if if things had, had worked out a lot better, um, and we probably, 10 years ago, we should have had the clinic. Uh, but eventually something's going to shift, or at least that's what history tells me yeah. in my head that it should, um, to then solve the issues of affordable care and then make it quality care, and then um, removing the barriers that um, these people have to face with those other issues. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not just education, because we can pound education down everyone's throat all day long, but there are other things that we've already established that needs to get there first for them to actually 
get the education. Use the education. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. People will know, but you still need to actually do the change. Yes. Sure. So, and, and, even, and it starts really from organizations like what we do at Hope and Help and then the, the health department or other places to then treat HIV and, and everything else, not like it was done in the 80s, but then right. more proactive ways of treating it. Because um, at this point, no one's really done anything innovative that's getting ahead of the issue. Sure. I mean, and I totally see the point of essentially becoming a and we do HIV to kind of organization, mm -hmm. right? Um, unfortunately, the stigma is still there. And, you know, maybe it's safer that way, right? For, mm -hmm. for everybody to not, you know, to essentially be like, yes, we do all these other things and HIV. Like, we do that too. I, I can see both sides of this. Yeah. And then the stigma, I think when I first started, someone told me, Everyone knows someone that has HIV. I'm like, I didn't. Like that, that wasn't my reality, and I think that's a reality for a lot of people. Uh, and, and not saying that you need to know someone to have HIV to to care, um, but there's but there's a bunch of things that can lead to that being an actual reality versus you just having a small circle. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that those are my thoughts on all of that. Um, did you wanna? Add anything else? Because I um, think we're running close to time. Because I think I this want is you... a pretty good stopping point. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I think we had a really good discussion. Thank you so much for coming in. And uh, we probably should do another part two of all of this. I'm gonna have to uh, find more things to think about. There's <laughs> always more. There's always more. <laughs> well, we live in a state where a lot happens. So well, I guess that's true. <laughs> so <laughs> we can talk about anything. <laughs> No. Thanks so much for inviting me to come. I really appreciate it. Do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, like uh, uh, self promotion. Promotion. Self -promotion about. I should have something to promote. Events. That's my problem. <laughs> oh, man. Um, no. Have you have you visited a Rodney favorite restaurant in Orlando since you've been here? Because you haven't been. You've only been here for less than a year still, right? Uh, it'll be almost two years in July. Oh wow! Yeah, it's so crazy. It moves really fast. There's a lot of food that I like. There's so here so or in much general. Food. Oh, uh, in yeah, all of the above. <laughs> there's, yeah, yeah, there's, there's a lot of variety here. There's a sure. lot of great food, so I can't name any one particular restaurant either. I always say Orlando yeah. is a is a low key foodie city. Mm -hmm. Definitely, it, it's yeah. it's that is vastly underrated, and people don't people just think Disney and Universal. They don't think oh, there's a nice little mom and pop places to eat that are really right. good. Yeah. You well, need to get a croissant at the French area. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still looking for, like, a really kick-ass Chinese restaurant. That's what I need. Do you know what Hawker's is? It's, uh, like, I've Asian fusion. It. It's yeah. on uh, Mills Ave. It's pretty good, okay. though. And they have, like, happy hour specials where it's a lot cheaper. Okay. I yeah. loved Real Fish in Winter Park. Real Fish, yeah. R-E-E-L. Yeah. Okay. Love their food. Oh, well, that's not Chinese, but it's... Right. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, that's... Obviously, it doesn't, it doesn't go with Chinese or... Um, but really good food. Kind of expensive, but really good food. Well, that's the thing, right? It has to be part of the budget. Right. Food is always part of the budget anyway. That's why but... I mentioned half the hour. Right. Yeah. Uh, you can I'm always have a too. treat yourself, uh, treat yourself night. And enjoy all the hard work you've been doing. No, I do. I, I have to. I set aside part of the budget for <laughs> for fancy food. Right. <laughs> all right. Well, thank, thank you so you. much for joining us. Thank you.